Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Iran nuclear deal talks appear frozen. And as U.S. midterm elections are coming up, the Biden administration is busy pouring fuel onto the Ukrainian fire and provoking China with belligerent statements, but still seems intent on extracting itself from its Middle Eastern presence, relying on so-called over-the-horizon capabilities, meaning flying death robots or drones. And yet the talks to restore the JCPOA have stalled. It's reached the point where prominent U.S. allies, such as former Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt and former EU foreign policy chief Javier Solana, accuse Biden of passivity vis-a-vis Iran in the Washington Post this week. It's puzzling, they wrote, that after running on a return to the nuclear deal and promising that America is back, Biden has been slow-walking diplomacy that U.S. allies strongly support. Enrique Mora, the European Union's coordinator for Iran nuclear deal negotiations, who recently visited Iran to help reach a deal, also shared on Twitter the Built in Solana article, which warned that we may find ourselves in another conflict that no one asked for. The French foreign ministry has also publicly complained that the draft agreement has been ready for two months. To help understand why attempts to salvage an agreement have not succeeded, as well as to catch up on regional events, I'm joined by Mohamed Morandi, professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Iran nuclear deal talks appear frozen, and as U.S. midterm elections are coming up, the Biden administration is busy pouring fuel onto the Ukrainian fire and provoking China with belligerent statements but still seems intent on extracting itself from its Middle Eastern presence, relying on so-called over-the-horizon capabilities, meaning flying death robots or drones. So, Mohammed, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me. And I should should also add that you were, uh, during the talks in Vienna, you were the international media advisor to the negotiating team, the Iranian negotiating team, just to throw that in there. But I guess let's get right into it. Um, where do things stand now and why is there no agreement? Well, there are a number of differences that continue to exist. We have to keep in mind that it was the Americans that left the deal under Trump. And before Trump left the deal, it was the Americans under Obama and Trump that were violating the deal. So the Iranians were in full compliance from day one. The Americans were not. Obama was um, in violation of the deal in that he prevented Iran from accessing uh, the international financial system. And the agreement says, the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, says specifically that the Americans should not only stop hindering the normalization of Iranian trade, but the United States has a a responsibility to facilitate the normalization of Iranian trade. But behind the scenes, Obama was telling banks through the treasury, financial institutions, uh, insurance companies, shipping companies, and oil companies, energy companies, not to do business with Iran or else. 
So while the Iranians were implementing the deal in good faith, the Americans weren't. And then, of course, Trump tore up the deal. This is where things stood when the negotiations began, because Biden, he was criticizing Trump for leaving the deal. But then when he became president, he basically implemented Trump's policies. Mm -hmm. And that is a continuation of maximum pressure. And also, I should add that when Trump tore up the deal, the Iranians continued to implement the deal in full, even though the Europeans and the Americans were all violating every single commitment. Every single commitment that they had, they ignored and they imposed maximum pressure sanctions. So the Iranians in order to show that they had good faith, they continued to fully implement the deal, even under maximum pressure sanctions. And after a full year of full implementation, they began to decrease their commitments in stages. Every two months, they would stop implementing parts of the deal to put pressure on the Europeans because the Europeans promised the Iranians all sorts of things and they did nothing even though the Iranians knew that the Europeans were lying. But they still said, okay, we'll wait. So the decreased implementation, the, the process of decreasing implementation during the second year took a full year. So it was after two years that the Iranians ended most of their commitments. And then it was only after Biden became president that the Iranians discontinued all of their commitments. Mm. So I'm saying this because I want your viewers to know who is the problem. So for decades, you know, for decades, the Iranians were accused of building a, a nuclear weapon. And it was always, you know, since the early 1990s, it was always a few months away, always a few months away, sort of like an oasis. <laughs> you know, towards the oasis and there there it is the iranian nuclear weapon right you know straight ahead and then you go there and still desert and then you know it's it's been like that for decades so the iranians and the americans and the p4 plus one because the americans were gone it used to be the p5 plus one the americans left it was the p4 plus one the iranians said we will not allow the americans back at the negotiating table until they meet their obligations. So the Iranians in Vienna began negotiating with those who remained in the deal. The Germans, the French, the Russians, the Chinese, and the British. Mm -hmm. And of course, the European Union was there as well. So, and the Americans came and they were sitting in a building next door and in consultation with their allies and the Russians and the Chinese, now they're adversaries, I suppose. <laughs> but during the negotiations in Vienna, the Iranians said very clearly that we're willing to implement the deal, but the Americans have to implement the deal in full as well. And we will not allow the Americans to cheat us again like in the past. How did the Americans cheat the Iranians? Well, under Trump, the Americans tore up the deal. So this time around, the Iranians are saying, we need assurances right. that you, don't, you don't, don't just tear up the deal tomorrow. The second is, since Obama cheated Iran and he was in violation of the deal, major parts of the deal, the Iranians are saying, we need 
a verification process that both sides are implementing the deal. Because in 2015, there was a verification process for the Iranians. It was the IAEA. Whatever the mm-hmm. Iranians did, the IAEA said, yes, the Iranians did that. And that was a sort of checklist. So they had people who'd come to Iran. But there was no verification process for the Americans. Americans said, we'll normalize this, we'll normalize that. And they didn't do it. So the Iranians this time around said, you need a verification process as well. In order for us to do something, we have to have evidence that you're doing what you have to do as well. So these were two major additions to the the JCPOA. It didn't change the nature of the JCPOA, but it protected. They were there to protect the JCPOA. Right. So the Iranians were adding protection. Understandably. Yeah, understandably so. Yeah. So... The Iranians told the Americans, okay, you have to promise you won't leave the deal, right? And sorry, this is a long introduction, but I think it's, it's necessary. It's important, yeah. The Iranians said to the Americans, okay, we need assurances. The Americans said, we can't give assurances for the next presidency. Right. So the Iranians said, okay, give us assurances for your own presidency. And the Americans said, we can't do that either. So this is who the people who the Iranians are negotiating with. So Biden is basically telling the Iranians, well, you know, if I leave, I leave. Yeah. And the Iranians say, well, we can't work that way. So at the negotiating table, the Iranians said, okay, then we will have to keep our facilities intact. We will have to have our uh, capability to enrich uranium through advanced uh, equipment, advanced centrifuges mm-hmm. intact, or at least they should be, we should be able to reassemble them quickly. That's our leverage. Those are our assurances. You can't promise to, to, to protect the deal, then we need this as protection. So the Americans say, well, these are new centrifuges. Uh, and the Iran said, well, you, you, you brought about hundreds of billions of dollars of damage to the Iranian economy. Either compensate for that, either you pay us the hundreds of billions of dollars of damage that you cause, or we keep these assurances. These, the, this new technology was d- developed as a result of the United States leaving the deal. Right. And, it's only, and it was only brought about after the Iranians continued to implement the deal well after the Americans left and the Europeans halted implementation. Ultimately, the Americans and the Europeans had to accept. So the Iranians agreed where these new, very advanced centrifuges, they they would be removed, they would cease to enrich uranium, but Iran would be capable of bringing them back online swiftly if the Americans violated the deal if the Europeans cheated the Iranians. Right. But, and then of course, I don't want to get into the verification process that what was agreed upon was that the Americans would have to do certain things and then the Iranians would do certain things and then the Americans. So there was this sort of, you know, there were three months of negotiations so that history didn't repeat itself. So that the, so that the Americans couldn't, cheat Iran Obama style or cheat Iran Trump style. 
And of course, Biden, by lying and continuing with Trump's policies of maximum pressure, where he targets women and children, killing ordinary people to get his way, he, that did not inspire confidence among right. Iranians. The Iranians were adamant that we have to have this protection. So I'll, I'll just add one more thing and then I'll respond to your question. And that is because it's an interesting fact. Remember, because I just want to show how the Western media and how Western think tanks and how Western governments are dishonest about the nature of Iran's nuclear program. As I, as I said earlier, the Iranian nuclear pro program, this military, uh, let's say, attempt to create a nuclear weapon, and I should point out that if Iran wanted a nuclear weapon, it would have had it years ago. Right. But this is, as I say, it's like an oasis. It's like a, a mirage, right? It's like a mirage where you see this oasis like ahead of you, and then you go forward and you see it's just a mirage. Mm -hmm. The closer you get to the oasis, you know, like on these move in these mo old 1960 <laughs> movies where you know people are stuck in the desert and they see an oasis yeah. and it's like that since the 1990s. But even during these negotiations, because it's still fresh in people's minds, the Americans and the Europeans kept saying that time is running out. The Iranian nuclear program is, has reached a point where if we don't conclude the negotiations now, it's too late. Right. So they set these artificial deadlines and all that. This was just two, three, four months ago. Well, there are no negotiations taking place right now. And why aren't they worried about Iran's nuclear program? Because they were lying all along. They right. knew that Iran wasn't developing a nuclear weapon. So these deadlines that they were set, you know, that they set three months ago, well, Iran is still doing R&D, research and development. Iran is developing its peaceful nuclear program. But suddenly they're not concerned anymore. Aren't we a threat to the world? Aren't we on the verge of building a nuclear weapon? They're distracted with Ukraine. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, they, they, but they're lying. They were yeah. lying now. They were just yeah. lying. They were lying. They, oh, their intelligence organizations knew that Iran was had never been seeking a nuclear weapon. They even say it. Like, they even yeah. say it. Yeah, exactly. So, so this keeping all this in mind, now what are they saying? Not, they're not, now they're not saying Iran has reached that point of no return. Now they're saying the problem is Iran. Okay, well, with all this history, let's put a question mark over this. The mm -hmm. problem is Iran. The Iranians are saying the, uh, the Revolutionary Guards, uh, the Iranians are demanding that the Revolutionary Guards be removed from the FTO, the Foreign Terrorist Organization List of the United States. Right. Right? Nonsense. If the United States right now decides to remove the Revolutionary Guards, the whole of the Revolutionary Guards from the FTO right now, as we speak, there still won't be a deal. The reason is that the United States has not resolved key issues yet for the deal to be implemented. Mm. And for example, the Iranians are saying, what if the United States leaves the deal? What if Biden decide, decides after signing the deal to quit the deal six months later? Let's say the Israelis carry out a false flag operation somewhere in Europe. 
And then they say the Revolutionary Guards wanted to murder these Israelis. And then you, you, you'll have this network of people who will be, you know, providing evidence, you know, informed sources, intelligence officers who will, can't be named. Oh, you know, this, the, the standard procedure for creating a narrative. Who will all be saying, yes, there's evidence that the Iranians are behind them. And then Biden will be put under pressure and then he'll have to leave the deal. Let's say, right? So the Iranians say, well, since we, we and since Biden said he can't promise to implement the deal, the Iranians are saying, okay, let's say the you leave the deal after six months. What do people who invest in Iran during those six months do? What happens to their investment? So let's say you, let's say you're rich, you made a lot of money off your uh, online show, and you want <laughs> to build a petrochemical plant in Iran. So you want to invest a billion dollars. Hopefully you'll hire me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> say $500 million worth of equipment and you hire people and then suddenly Biden leaves. Right. So and- the Iranians saying, what happens to those people who invested in Iran during that period when the United States said it was okay? Was the yeah. The Americans were saying, that's their tough luck. Wow. Iranian, Iranian said, no, that's, that's not going to work. Right. Why would any, no one would agree to that. No one no would one agree would, to that. No would, yeah. No one would and invest the, in Iran. Right. That too. Right. Yeah. Security. Yeah. If the Americans leave, then you can say, okay, after the date where they leave, then whatever. And then the Iranians will return to enriching uranium. And But d- those who want to invest during those six months, during those three weeks, during those eight months before the false flag operation or whatever. Yeah. They need protection. Right. So they negotiated over this. I don't want to go into the details, but they haven't come to an agreement. The Americans mm-hmm. have failed to give assurances to protect people who want to Basically, it sounds it sounds to me like the Americans are just unwilling to make even the like slightest concession. And that actually concession is not even the right word because these are just like basic things that this any is, yeah. That is what they're, the they're, they're, refusing was about. To, they're basically refusing to abide by any of the agreement. Like they're saying, we'll re-enter this agreement, but we can arbitrarily just not abide by anything whenever we feel like it. That's the agreement yes. the Americans want. Yes, I, I want to buy your apartment. And then right. I say, well, you give me the keys. You give me, you, know, you sell <laughs> yeah. You know, if I feel like it, I'll pay. And if I, if I feel like letting you live in it, then I'll back off. But when I feel like, yeah, it's, it's actually, nobody would agree to that. It's completely absurd, but I did want to ask you, you know, where, in terms of the Europeans and the countries, like what efforts have they, have there been from them to try to help or have there been? No, Qatar doesn't have a role to play here. Okay. They never had a role. Uh, The, Europeans, they they want a deal. They need a deal badly. But the Europeans can't make their own decisions. (laughs) I don't know if you know that when the European representative came to Iran a couple of weeks ago, when he returned at the airport in Berlin, I think, they took his cell phone away from him. Really? He, he tweeted this. Yes, if you 
whenever you want to show this, find his tweet, Mora. Oh, they, right. they held him at the airport. Yeah, he, him, yeah his, I remember this. His colleagues, they separated them and they took they took his cell phone. In, in, in Europe, he's a high-ranking EU diplomat. Who would do that? Who's behind it? Why was... Why did this happen? Why did they make him so angry that he tweeted about it? So he obviously in the, the, the Europeans want that, but whoever took his cell phone, I would does not want does not want it. Not want it. <laughs> yeah. But you know, for for that to happen, you would think that that would be the top news story across the world, but it just so. The Europeans want to deal. And the Europeans right now, behind closed doors, they accept Iran's position. And we were close to a deal, by the way. During the negotiations, a couple of people in the American team, they left the the negotiating table. They quit the team because they felt that the Americans were conceding too much. Of course, accepting key issues that need to be resolved in order for the nuclear deal to be implemented. Right. And then the head of the team, the American side, he went to Congress, uh, Robert Malley, and the Senate, and it didn't go down well. They, he faced a lot of criticism. And then after that, this was very, you know, they, it, it was, they got cold feet. So we were very close to a deal during the last days that I was in Vienna. The, the, the feeling was that we were almost there. And, the, you know, the Americans and the Europeans... And then suddenly, you know, everything seemed to be moving forward. We thought that the foreign ministers would be in Vienna for a signing ceremony within two or three days. And then suddenly it all stopped. So the Americans recognize where things stand. And uh, so history shows that it's the Americans that were lying about Iran's peaceful nuclear program. Right. Thus, you know the artificial red lines and deadlines and then nothing. And then of course, decades of, you know, um, mirage, you know, accusations, you know, it is, it's right ahead of us, this nuclear weapon, you know, for decades, they were lying in the past. Then when there was a deal in 2015, they violated the deal. Mm-hmm. Iran implemented the deal. It's all there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually there. it's actually really interesting and I think important that you point out that the Europeans want a deal, but they're not in charge of their own policy. I think that speaks to the broader problem. I mean, whatever is happening right Why now. Ukraine? Exactly. The Europeans, even though it actually impacts them directly and geographically what's happening with more Ukraine than and Russia. Else. More than Americans, that's for sure. Yeah, more, more than, than, than the Russians. It's it impacts them directly. It's in their neighborhood, yet they have like zero say. And even even if they did have a say in their own policy, they may they might still make the same American decisions. But they've ultimately just handed over the decision making capacity for everything to the Americans and are completely spineless. But I did want to ask you about this because you know a few months ago, it seemed as though the that it was Russia that was obstructing a success. Uh, excuse me, it was Russia that was obstructing a successful agreement. At least that's how it was being portrayed. Uh, this was around, I think, the time when the war in Ukraine had started. Has that issue been resolved? Well, again, this is something with the Western media tries to, this an image that they're trying to create, 
in order to hide the fact that it is the United States that's a problem. So, and they do that through their Persian media as well. BBC mm-hmm. Persian, BOA Persian, Iran International, which is a Saudi outlet, um, and all these other Persian media outlets. And their, and their cyber army that's based in Albania, <laughs> in the yeah. country, they have, a, a, they have the MEK terrorist organization that killed 17,000 Iranians that fought for Saddam Hussein. They have thousands of them based in Albania carrying out cyber warfare and, of course, doing other uh, horrible things, working with Israelis to assassinate people and to carry out espionage. So NATO is at basically as is at war with Iran through these terrorist organizations. But in any case, the the, the media arm of the MEK, the the cyber army, and the Persian media, they create this image that the problem is Russia because they're trying to they they were trying to hide the fact that the problem is in Washington. So first they were saying it was Russia, and then when it came out that it was nonsense. Then they said, oh, it's, you know, the Revolutionary Guards. It always has to be something. It's just not the Americans. Anybody but the Americans. Anybody, Anybody but the Americans. But the Americans. <laughs> Any, it can be anything but the Americans. So exactly. the Russians, they, when the war started and the sanctions began, they said that, you know, we, we need assurances because we have a role to play in implementing the deal. And many of those assurances were valid assurances, and they had they had their own uh, concerns as well. They they were worried that uh, that you know the Russians and the Chinese they did cooperate with Iran uh, during the maximum pressure campaign, not to a degree that the Iranians wanted, but they did do a lot. And then the, the Russians were worried, okay, well, now that there's going to be a deal, the Americans and the Europeans want to separate us from the deal, sanction us. So we were cooperating with Iran. Now we only they can reap the benefits, let's mm-hmm. say, of a deal. So these, are the, these were the two issues. One was that through the sanctions, the Russians would not be able to implement their obligations in the deal, which were valid. The Russians cooperate with the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, the Russians also would be taking away highly enriched uranium. Their ships would have to come to Iranian ports if they're sanctioned, then those ships won't be able to make it. So, And then the Iranian sent a delegation to Russia to tell them that you know, we're, we're not, we don't care what the Europeans and the Americans say if they sanction you. They sanctioned us and we work with you. They sanction you, we'll still work with you. Okay. So the Russians said, we're on board. And that was it. Problem solved. <laughs> but then the Americans still did not sign the deal. They did not agree to fully implement the deal. The Americans, as I said, the Americans and the Europeans, the Europeans by just by following the Americans, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want the Iranians to implement their side. What what does they say? They say your rights, my rights are my rights, your rights are can be negotiated, something like that. So uh, that's how what the Americans want. And the Iranians are saying, no, you can't. That's that, that era is finished and you can't do I that see. with Iran. Iran is not Turkey. Iran is not Saudi Arabia. Iran is not uh, Egypt. It's not Pakistan. The Islamic Republic of Iran is a powerful and steadfast and fiercely independent, independent country. Uh, the Iranians were cooperating with the Venezuelans when mm-hmm. even the Russians and the Chinese were afraid to do so. The Iranians were helping Syria against ISIS and Al-Qaeda even before the Russians and the others agreed to come in. The Iranians are not going to 
be cheated again after what the Americans did in 2015. So the Iranians said, you either implement the deal in full or there's no deal. And so this is where we are now. So the Americans tried to blame the Russians. The Russians mm-hmm. said, no, we're on board. Then they couldn't find any other scapegoat. So it's now the, the guards. No, the problem is that the Americans have not given adequate assurances because the Iranians, what is the deal for? The Iranians would put caps on elements of its peaceful nuclear program. You know, and then there would, there would be economic normalization. If there's no economic normalization, then there's no reason for the Iranians to cap, put any caps on their peaceful nuclear program. Of course, it's by the, before you ask your question, it's that I gave you just one example. There are other issues as well. There's a, a sanctions list. Americans mm-hmm. don't want to remove many people and entities from that list. The Iranians are saying you have to remove these people. And, and they keep adding more. They keep adding more. Too. Yes. But also the thing is that some people who are on the sanctions list, all, first of all, these sanctions are all illegal. Yeah. And many people were added during the Trump time. But if these people aren't removed, first of all, many of them work to help the ordinary, save you ordinary people's lives. Many of them made sacrifices. Many of them did it out of the, to, to make money. But in any case, the Iranian government has an obligation to protect them. But second of all, let's say the Iranians agree, oh, yeah, we'll just keep all these people that the Americans want on the sanctions list. If the Americans quit the deal again mm-hmm. and impose maximum pressure sanctions and Iran needs equipment for its industries, for its food, for food processing, because a lot of this equipment is so-called Dual, dual use technology. Use. Yeah. They, they use that term to basically strangle the people. So, for example, when the Iranians were developing their vaccine, all the equipment was sanctioned. They couldn't bring. They had to, you know, secretly purchase all sorts of equipment to bring into the country. It was all. Dual. The Americans knew it. They wanted Iran to suffer. They wanted Iran. They wouldn't. They prevented us from purchasing vaccines. They prevented us from. Uh, bringing purchasing equipment to make our own vaccines, they sanctioned those institutions that developed vaccines. They prevented Iran from bringing in masks, uh, test kits. That's that's how that's that's the United States. That is the reality of the United States. And for those people who think that you know, wow, how could the United States do that? That's what the United States. Does all the does, time. Does, right. That's not that actually. Yeah, that the European allies, by the standard. way. I mean, I, I, as, I, as you know, I survived two chemical attacks. Those chemical weapons were given to Saddam Hussein by these Western governments. Mm-hmm. So for them, it's ordinary. But but the point is that these people on the sanctions regime, if, if they are not removed, then tomorrow when the Americans reimpose sanctions, when Biden decides, you know, to, to leave the deal, then if Iran asks someone, okay, we need you to go and purchase this equipment for this hospital, people won't do it. Because right, of said, course. Well, well, why would you want to put you, They were sanctioned. You never took care of them. So there are a host of issues. I mean, a lot of issues have been resolved. And we were getting pretty close. As I said, we thought we were almost, but then suddenly the Americans got cold feet because of the pressure coming from proponents of the deal in Washington and, and so on. But that's where we stand right now. You know, I'm curious, like this is just speculation. 
Um, but I'm curious when we look at, we know that the lead negotiator, American negotiator, Robert Malley spent years like hammering out the original deal with Zarif during the Obama administration. And he was pretty passionate about restoring it under Biden. So do you think that the Biden team is just like indifferent or passive? Like, what is it? Cause there are, obviously there are some on it who are hawks when there are other people on it that were obviously placed on it to give a sense of like, yes, we want to return to the deal. Well, the chief negotiator for the Americans was Kerry um, at that time. And on the Iranian side, it was Dr. Zarif. But we have to remember that the Iranians and the Americans were not negotiating. The Iranians said, we will not negotiate until the Americans recognize our right to maturity. And then Obama sent him, when the, uh, and then Obama imposed max, the, the maximum pressure sanctions were initiated by Obama, by the way, right. not Trump. Trump revived them. So Obama initiated the maximum pressure sanctions in order to make ordinary Iranians suffer as much as possible. Uh, Obama called them uh, crippling sanctions, and Trump called them brutal sanctions. So Obama wanted to cripple Iranians and uh, Trump wanted to brutalize them. You know, which one is worse? Say it's the same thing. Yeah. So, but when Obama imposed the crippling sanctions, the earlier version of the maximum pressure sanctions, Iran didn't budge. And Iran said the Americans have to accept Iran's right as a sovereign country to enrich uranium. And only after the Americans saw that they were getting nowhere did they send a message to Iran through Oman, and then the negotiations began. This was before President Rouhani was elected. So when the new government came in, the process had already begun. And so the new administration continued the negotiations, and then we had the negotiations ultimately led to the JCPOA in 2015. And I was there as well, just like here in Vienna, during this 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 three months of negotiations, I was also in Vienna during those three weeks when the nuclear deal was ultimately signed. Back then, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, I don't believe the Americans ever intended to impl- implement their side of the bargain, mm. and they never did. From day one, they violated the deal. From day one, it was not from day two, not from one. You know, after one month, the Americans from day one began violating. Whereas the Iranians implemented the deal in full immediately. And I was one of those people who thought the Americans would violate the deal. And I said so. That's true. Although I'm not an opponent, I was not an opponent of the deal. I was not a fan of the deal either. I thought the deal had serious flaws. And I blamed President Rouhani for it. I've said so publicly many times back then. But it was a deal. It's like, you know, if you sell your car or if you purchase a house, maybe I could have done a better job than you. Maybe someone else or I may have done a worse job. In any case, the house has been bought or the car has been sold. We have a deal. The Americans refused to implement it from day one. And the interesting thing is, and this is something that the Western media and Western think tanks never repeat. I said this in, on Hard Talk a few, two, three months ago when I was in Vienna, um, BBC Hard Talk, that the Iranian, 
So the Ayatollah Khamenei, the leader, the, the, the most important person in Iran when it comes to strategy and uh, and you know, the most important person in the, in, in the decision-making process in the country, not the only person, but the most important person, said that if the, in 2015, during the negotiations, that if the United States is honest in implementing the nuclear deal, in implementing its side of the bargain, in carrying out its obligations, then we can start talking about other issues. But the United States never did that. Obama never did that. So the Iranians, not only did they implement the, their side of the bargain, they also said to the Americans and Westerners in public, he said this in a speech, that if you are, if you show goodwill, then we can talk about other issues. But that's not how the United States works. Right. You know, some American officials have expressed concern that it's not just the success of the JCPOA that's so important, but also the failure, which is not because of like a direct American-Iranian confrontation, but because we'll see more, you know, actions and reactions in the Middle East, Iran will be perhaps less inclined to use its leverage over Iraqi resistance factions. They might feel more free to pressure the Americans who will then be pressured to respond. And at the same time, Israel will feel less restrained to attack Iran, which will also be more inclined to then respond. And then we enter into, you know, a so-called escalatory cycle. And then, you know, you do see Iran's kind of like newfound boldness, like with the strike recently in Erbil, it kind of seemed to set a new precedent, much like the, you know, the response at al-Assad. Um, and so, like, just showing that the resistance axis will retaliate, like the Houthis attacking KSA and UAE, for example. So I'm curious, does this sound like a realistic scenario to you? Well, first of all, we have to separate two things. One is that if, if, if we're going to argue that if we're going to, if the Americans are going to argue that the JCPOA is not a good deal, then at least they should first acknowledge that they lied the reason. with regards to its implementation mm-hmm. and with regards to American intentions. And Iran, Iran was faithful. So whether it's a good deal or a bad deal, I mean, in Iran, many people said it was a horrible deal mm-hmm. in 2015. It had really angry opponents who said, you know, the Americans are going to, they're not going to implement the deal. They're going to, you know, we're limiting ourselves. Our sovereign rights are being trampled upon. I don't want to get into that debate. I I, I was neither on, in either camp. I was, I had my own views. I thought there were good things about the deal and bad things about the deal. It could have been a better deal. It could have been worse. I probably would have been tougher at the negotiating table, but, you know, I'm not a negotiator. So, and I'm not in charge. So, but in any case, it's a deal. And the negotiators had were handicapped by the fact that Mr. Rohani, you know, did not give them a did not help them have a strong hand. He kept saying, we need a deal, you know, the we don't have money and so on. That's not how you negotiate. Mm-hmm. If if you and I are going to sell a car and I'm you know I'm speaking to you, keep saying sell it, sell it. The guy knows that he can get it pretty cheap. Right. So, you know, there are a lot of issues that could be discussed. But in any case, put that aside. 
if the Americans don't want Iran to have drones, if they don't want Iran to have missiles, they should first think about removing their military bases that have surrounded the country. The Americans had something like 40 some bases up to a year ago. I mean, when they left Afghanistan, some of them were, the numbers lessened, but if anyone who looks at the map, there are all sorts of military bases surrounding Iran. And the Americans have murdered high-ranking Iranian officials in the past, right. like General mm-hmm. Soleimani. So you have a superpower that has nuclear weapons, that has military bases surrounding the country. They've already invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. They're occupying one-third of Syria. They've destroyed Libya. You know, why should Iran trust Americans? So if the Americans are worried about Iran's limited military capabilities, then the Americans have to rethink their you know, the way in which they've structured their uh, regional security apparatus. That's a, what's a nice diplomatic way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> and if the Americans are concerned about Iranian support for Ansarullah in Yemen, for the people of Yemen, then the Americans should stop the genocide. The Americans, the British, the, the Canadian regime the German regime, all these regimes, because they like, sometimes people say, why do you say regime so often? Because they call Iran a regime. I say, well, if, it's, if, yeah. if Iran's a regime, they have regime. So when I, in my tweets, people, some of my friends say, God, you don't have to keep writing regime. I say, well, whenever they stop. Hey, you gotta, you know, use it against, <laughs> use their, use their words against them. Yeah. So they help Saudi Arabia and the Emirates carry out genocide genocide, Mm -hmm. starvation, a starvation scene, something that is unprecedented in contemporary human history. And then they're outraged, by the way, with what Russia does in Ukraine, which is nothing compared to what they did and and have continued to do in Yemen. But in any case, if they want Iran not to help the people in Yemen, then they have to stop the war. If they want Iran not to help the Syrians, then they have to stop supporting Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all these extremist groups. I know, I know you've discussed this before, There's, and I'm not, I know your audience is politically aware, but just a brief summary, Biden himself at Harvard University in 2014 admitted that all sorts of weapons were given by U.S. allies to Everyone in Syria, including ISIS, or Jake Sullivan, who's a national security advisor of Biden, said in an email to Hillary Clinton on February the 12th, 2012, that in Syria, Al-Qaeda is on our side. And we know that ISIS came from Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, ISIS was a breakaway of Al-Qaeda. So the United States, they want Iran not to be in Syria but they want to destroy Syria. It's the U.S. Have, yeah. Well, no, what you're saying is basically the U.S. wants a completely subjugated region that does not hit, yes. that does not fight back, that doesn't defend itself. Yeah, and, and Iran is not, as I said, Iran is not Turkey. You know, Erdogan is NATO. 
he can pretend that he's something else sometimes, but he's a friend <laughs> of the apartheid regime. You know, one day he's an ally of it. You know, we used to like him when he, you know, started speaking out against Israel, then he's a friend of Israel. One day he's supporting the extremists. All when, over the place. I mean, uh, Iran is not Turkey. Iran's policies are clear. Yeah. Iran is not Egypt. Iran is not Saudi Arabia. The Americans have to treat Iran and its allies with respect. And if Iran was a bad actor, if Iran was, then who's the worst actor? If in Yemen, Iran is a bad actor, who's carrying out the starvation? Mm-hmm. Who's opposing starvation? And if it's and if, if in Yemen, it's really, if, he, if, the, if the people of Yemen do not support Iran's policies, then why is it that after seven years of starvation, the capital is in the hands of Ansar Allah, or what the Westerners like to call the Houthis? Mm. Why is it that Iran under sanctions, which can only give limited aid, is, is helping one side? And that side has defeated the other side, a multinational coalition with hundreds of billions of dollars spent with all sorts of weapons used, yet they still couldn't be, defeat the people of Yemen. Why? Because Iran was on the side of the people. Iran was on the side of the and people that's, of Yemen. That's, that's the big problem with Iran. That's, I mean, I think you just explained exactly, exactly why the Americans have like a, Iran in the crosshairs, because it's not just in Yemen, across the region. They, the Iranians have partnerships and ally with groups that defend the sovereignty of their territories and of their countries, whether it's Palestinians, uh, whether it's Lebanese, whether it's Syrians, uh, whether it's Yemenis, whether it's in Iraq and the, you know, the axis of resistance. And this, like, I mean, this is essentially the U.S. wants to a free hand in the region and Iran is a huge obstacle to that uh, in a very significant way. And that's why it's treated the way it is. But, you know, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, and I think this is an important uh, an important topic uh, when it comes to the negotiations. You know, we hear that unlike the American-Iranian talks, the Saudi-Iranian talks are actually going much better and are far more advanced. What can you tell us about these talks? Where are they being held? Who's sitting with whom? And over what are they negotiating? Well, I don't want to go into too much detail, but what I I think the key issue is that the Saudis refused to talk to the Iranians for years mm-hmm. because they thought that they could win the war. They thought that by imposing starvation with USAID, you, the U.S. Navy was a part of the starvation process. They helped the Saudis prevent food and medicine from getting into the country. The UN was with the Saudis because the Saudis used their clout and their wealth to make sure the UN did what they wanted. So the US, Canada, the European Union, Australia, all these countries were working side by shoulder shoulder to shoulder with the Saudis and the Emirates to starve the people of Yemen. And so did Erdogan, by the way. And then until they, you know, until we saw the siege on Qatar, there was a, after, until the divorce. Yeah. And then they flipped. <laughs> the, the same is true with Qatar. Qatar, Turkey were supporting the genocide. 
just like they were supporting the extremist groups in Syria. And then there was a divorce between Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and these countries. And, you know, I don't want to explain too much. It's not really the point here, but there was a huge coalition. So the Saudis, for a few years, they had all these countries on their side, including, as I said, Turkey and Qatar, everyone. And they thought they'd win the war, but they couldn't. And they got bogged down. And but they 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 wanted to they wanted a way out where they could win or at least be seen as winning. So they wanted the Iranians when they began to start to start when they said they want to negotiate with the Iranians. At first, it was so that the Iranians would solve their problem for them. And the Iranians told the Saudis, "Look, we don't negotiate on behalf of Yemen." They're not our proxies. We help them, even though we're sanctioned, and we can't really give them that much help because we're sanctioned, A, and B, uh, because they're surrounded. Just like in Syria, I mean, Westerners say Iran sent billions of dollars. Iran, the, the aid that Iran gave to Syria was nothing compared to the money spent by NATO and Arab oil rich dictatorships and the Israeli regime and you know, it's nothing. But the issue was the reason why Syria didn't fall was because Iran's assistance was enough to help prevent the fall of the Syrian state into the hands of these extremist groups carrying the black flag. Right. If Syria, if the Syrian government did not have popular support, and I'm not saying the Syrian government is some utopian state has many problems, but if it was seen as illegitimate in the eyes of the public of Syria, imagine you that huge coalition, NATO, regional countries, all that, and then you only have Iran that said the Russians, you know, the, for the first four years, they were they were sort of standing back, giving political support to Iran and Syria, but not getting that much involved. And the Iranians their involved their military involvement only began Hezbollah in Iran in 2013, not at the beginning, only after tens of thousands of foreign fighters were already in Syria. Right. So the Iranians with their so the reason why the state didn't collapse was because the public did not want these extremists. Some people loved Assad, some people like Assad, some people did not like him, but they didn't want these extremists. They don't want to live under ISIS, yeah. Yes, or Al Qaeda, or Jaish al-Islam, or all these Ahrar al-Sham, and all, all these like other little people. clones of ISIS, right? Yeah, exactly. So the state didn't fall because the people didn't want what the Americans were trying to impose on them, what NATO was trying to impose on them, what Saudi Arabia, what Turkey, what Israel were trying to impose on them. The same was true in Yemen. So the Saudis were trying to find a solution where they can be have a victory. And the Iranians said, look, these guys, if Syria is not our proxy, Hezbollah is not our proxy, it's not like your, you know, like Al-Qaeda. And, it's not and like your proxies. Yeah, they, they, yes, you know, exactly. they have proxies literally that are actual proxies. They have little proxies. Right. They, but they yeah. assume that the other side is like them, where it's not people who are like from those areas who are defending their homelands. It's just proxies that will fall just like theirs do as soon as the funding and arms, you know. Dry up. If Erdogan, for example, today pulls the plug 
from Al Qaeda and you know to former they changed their name, but you know we know Hayatullah is, is you know that's who they were and that's who they are. Yes. If they pull the plug, it's over. Yeah. If he pulls the plug, it's over. Yeah. So, so these are not Iranian proxies, and the Iranians say, look, we can negotiate with you. We can reestablish ties. We can talk, but we can't. We're not the decider, as Bush would say. We're not the decider. <laughs> We're not the decider. And so, and so that blocked progress. And there were rounds of negotiations with very little progress. But then, oh, gradually, the Saudis began to see that, you know, this is not going to work. And they need to end the war. And it was only recently when the Ansar Allah hit Saudi oil installations really hard. Yeah. That the Saudis agreed to the ceasefire. And I think that the Americans and the Europeans told the Saudis you have to end this now. Because the war in Ukraine began, the price of oil had gone up, and they saw that the Patriot uh, missile defense capabilities of the United States were not stopping the drones. I mean so the I've only option told- it shows you, it shows you that that like the military response from the Houthis. Uh, actually does have some sort of benefit in terms of getting the Saudis to, like, it's leverage. Yes, and it's basically what brought about the ceasefire. So the Americans and the Europeans needed a ceasefire badly. The Saudis needed it badly. And now we have a ceasefire. So the Saudis came to the conclusion that, look, if, 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 we, don't, if we don't try to end this war, we're going to go bankrupt. Because it's... Yeah. Remember, Saudi Arabia right now is making a lot of money again. And so is Iran, by the way, with these high, high oil prices. Iran has, Iran is selling, has sold all of its oil and without any discounts. Iran has no spare capacity and it doesn't have enough oil for its customers now, thanks wow. to what, you know, what the, the sanctions <laughs> of the Europeans impose on Russia. The same is true with Venezuela. Yeah. Uh, so the by imposing sanctions on Russia, they've increased... Russian uh, oil um, uh, revenue, but they've also made Iran and Venezuela uh, (laughs) help make a lot of money. But the the Saudis are now making a lot of money with these high prices, but the cost of war was huge. And remember, the United States, which it was the sole superpower, they, they spent trillions of dollars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which, in my opinion, had a huge role to play in the decline of the United States. These trillions of dollars have an impact. They, they, they wear down a country, the capabilities of a country. So when the United States is spending trillions of dollars and it can't sustain its economy and its global presence as a result, there's no way that Saudi Arabia can continue war for, forever. Right. How much oil they have. So this the Saudis are, have begun to recognize and I'm not saying we're going to have a, a like a big, a, a big neighborhood block party. <laughs> yeah, that, nothing is for certain. But the Saudis have changed their stance, and the negotiations are making more progress. And the Saudis have have changed their position on a host of different issues. I don't want to get into it. I don't know everything. Right. I know I, I've heard some things, but in any case, it's too early to say what will happen. But the Saudis have become much more realistic. And if the Saudis, if the Saudis agree to end the war in Yemen, a lot can be done, even though 
this will go down in history as the greatest crime of the 21st century. And it'd still be and certainly American, be good for the broader region. And the Canadian prime minister is a war criminal. He's committed crimes against humanity. So have British prime ministers. So have has the German chancellor, past and present. The French president, past and present. Mm-hmm. All these, all these governments, history will remember them as the greatest criminals of the the first half of the 21st century. Unless something worse happens, it's Ukraine is nothing compared to what happened in Yemen. It's nothing. It's horrible. War is horrible. I don't agree with the war in Yemen. I've said this on RT many times during every time I've been on RT, I've repeated this. You mean the war in Ukraine? I, yeah, the war. Sorry, the war in Ukraine. I don't agree with the war, although I do say every time that I blame NATO more than anyone else for expanding eastward and lying about uh, promising to do otherwise and then lying. The coup supporting extremists, just like they supported in Syria, ISIS and Al Qaeda. They support Nazis, just like in, in Ukraine, just like they supported the Contras in Nicaragua and that sort of thing. And of course, the suppression and murder of, you know, Russian-speaking Ukrainians and and these. Yeah, you know these things better than I. I blame NATO more than I blame anyone else. I don't support the war, but you know, and I say this on RT, and they allow me to come back again and again to their to their credit. But the war in Ukraine is terrible. All wars are terrible. I do not want to see war in Israel. I want to see the apartheid regime collapse. I want to see, like in South Africa, apartheid to be dismantled and everyone to be able to live side by side. Of course, not like in South Africa, where the rich remain rich and the poor remain poor. But racially speaking, at least the the the, the, the regime be dismantled. I don't want war anywhere. But none of the wars that we've seen, whether in Libya, a Western war, whether the war against Iranians and Venezuelans and Cubans and through through starvation and siege, uh, the war against, uh, or at least attempt to impose starvation, preventing medicine from coming, the war against Afghanistan, none of these wars, come, even the war in Iraq, compared to what they did in Yemen. That yes. will not be for But if the war comes to an end, a lot can be done to improve the situation in the region. And the Iranians are more than willing to cooperate to bring about a stable Persian Gulf region. Again, this is sort of like what I told you when the Iranian, when Ayatollah Khamenei, the, the leader, he said that if the Americans show good faith in implementing the nuclear deal, then we can start talking about other issues. The Americans didn't want it. They never implemented the deal and they never showed good faith. If the Saudis show good faith, history will still be history. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the can change. So right. let's see what happens. Well, on that on that topic of like broader regional um, developments in a in a positive direction, should there be some sort of deal? We've also seen increased cooperation between the Emirates and the in Iran, and this started a bit under Trump, but has generally increased under Biden. And you know, some factions in the region attribute this to the Houthis and Iraqi resistance attacks on the UAE, which served to encourage them, it's one way to put it, to be more cooperative in Yemen and Iraq. 
Um, much, I mean, like just like Saudi Arabia, I mean, hitting the UAE was a very big deal. It's supposed to be this kind of island of stability uh, in, in like a, a region that has so much war in it. And once it starts being bombed, um, that, that idea of stability goes away and it can be completely ruinous, ruinous to their economy. Um, an Emirati intelligence official even sat down with this senior commander in the Iraqi resistance. So I guess, to, you know, all of this is to say, to what do you attribute the improved Emirati-Iranian ties and what are the consequences of that? Well, because I think the Emiratis, they know that they're a very small country. And if there is war in the region, they'll, they'll, the regime would collapse. The Emirates would cease to exist. It's a dot on the map. The Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, these are not real countries. They're small entities. The Emirates has a population of, I think, a passport holding population of what, a, mil- a million people? Maybe less. It's, I don't even I don't even know if it's a million. Like in, in Qatar, it's like 300,000 or mm-hmm. 400,000. And most of the people in the Emirates are foreigners, indentured servants. Yeah. Or slaves, you know. Like Foreigners is putting it kindly, country. yeah. Right. Yeah. But so they began to realize that you know Yemen is is a growing power, militarily speaking, despite the starvation that they, they impose and and all that. And the same is true in New York. And the interesting thing, by the way, is a sort of parentheses or a footnote, is that everywhere in Iran is so unpopular, like in Iran, everyone hates Iran. Okay, well, if everyone hates Iran, then you shouldn't have any problems in Iraq. I mean, when they when I remember when you had these protests against Iran, like before General Soleimani was murdered, the Americans were, it was on, like you'd have a couple of hundred people in Karbala or a few hundred people in Baghdad, and they were saying the people are protesting against <laughs> right, Iran. All and these were basically people who worked for NGOs, Western-funded NGOs. Okay, let's, you know, you have these hundreds of people on the streets, and then you'd have the Western media making a big thing out of it. When General Soleimani was murdered, you had millions on the street mm-hmm. in, in, in Karbala, in Baghdad, in Najaf, and then you had millions in Iran. So it's always Iran is pop, unpopular, people hate Iran, Iranians hate the, the regime, it's falling up. And there's always a, you know, this paradox, because on the one hand, it's an unpopular regime, it's hated universally, but it's also a growing threat. I mean, if it's unpopular and it's corrupt and it's falling it's apart. everything all at the same time. <laughs> it's everything at the same time. So, you know, it's like, you know, you're dying on the one hand, but you're a, you're an imminent threat. I mean, come, can't <laughs> right. But that's just how it is, because it's Iran. So, and the same is true in Iraq. The same is true. So, you know, they, they repeat all these narratives and then they believe their own propaganda and then they impose policy based upon these narratives that they created. And they're always wondering, you know, why, why don't we, why don't we get the results that we're looking for? It's sort of like, like in, again, with Russia, I was just in Russia. I just came back this morning. Uh, I was in, uh, in uh, Kazan and Tatarasan for, for four days. And you know, I, I, I'm no Russian expert and I didn't visit the whole country, but it was obvious and I had no minders and there were, you know, people were supporting the, the Russian government. They were supporting, again, I'm 
I don't support war. I don't support the war in Ukraine. But again, I think the Americans pushed Ukraine towards war. And in any case, you've, I'm sure you've gone, I, I know you've gone, I've seen uh, some of your fantastic shows and I don't want to go into debates that you've already discussed in detail before. But in Kazan, you could tell that the, situ- the economic situation from what people were telling me and from what I saw is much better than what's happening in parts of Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, the ruble, I mean, the ruble has stayed shockingly to a lot of the shock of many has yeah, so, even become stronger. Interestingly so enough. The yeah. Americans and the Europeans, they, they say, yeah, we'll bring, you know, we'll turn. I think Biden said we'll turn the turning the, the, the ruble is being turned into rubble mm-hmm. in the first days. Well, Imagine their miscalculations right. are based on their own narratives. You know, we'll bring them down. We're, you know, the West. We're, and they believe their own nonsense. So they impose sanctions before thinking about it. You know, well, maybe these sanctions will hurt us more than them. Maybe we're not as powerful as we think we are. Mm-hmm. So, Meanwhile, yeah. I just want to, I just wanted to note, I mean, like you, we talked a bit about Yemen and I, we also have to mention the Americans are also starving Afghanistan right now. Like I oh, believe yeah. there's like the, the story, the horror stories that we're reading from Afghanistan that no one seems to care about. I mean, every camera, every major mainstream media outlet was in Afghanistan a few months ago when the Americans finally withdrew because they wanted the Americans to stay forever. And then suddenly they all left and then no one's talking about it anymore, but the Americans like have seized the assets of the Afghan central bank. People are like selling their organs and are selling their children. Worse I mean, than that. It's worse than that. That's it's absolutely, like, absolutely it horrendous. And we yeah, don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. Like it's like none of these, care. none of these crimes matter. None of these crimes matter. Care. I mean, when you say that what's matter. happening in Ukraine, as horrible as it is, is nothing compared to what, Western countries are still doing right now in places like Yemen and Afghanistan. Like that is no joke. It is no Western journalists who are talking about Ukraine day and night. It's because they're hypocrites. Every single one, every single, every single one of them are hypocrites. Every single one of them. They know their starvation in Afghanistan and they know that their governments have imposed it. They've stolen the assets of Afghanistan by sanctioning the government. The, the, Iran doesn't like the Taliban. I don't like the Taliban. But the Taliban is a reality. In fact, the Taliban, when the Americans were supporting the Taliban and the groups that led to the creation of the Taliban in the 1980s and the 1990s, you know, Taliban, Al Qaeda, then we had 9 11. We all know it was blowback. The Taliban, when they took the country, they killed Iranians and they killed Iranian, uh, they killed uh, Persian speakers, they killed Shias, they massacred people. This was in the 1990s. So Iran doesn't, there's no law, and you know, the Taliban, they were an extremist group. The Iranians hated them. The Iranians don't like the Taliban now. But, but the Iranians, continue to speak with the Taliban because the Iranians knew that the Taliban is a part of Afghanistan. Significant parts of Afghanistan are influenced by the Taliban. 
They're influenced by, and the Taliban, a lot of their, the, the extremism in the Taliban is linked to decades of religious education coming from Saudi Arabia right. with the support of the United States. Mm-hmm. The United States created this extremism. Just like they're doing in, in, in the Ukraine, allowing these extremists to thrive, and they, they think there won't be blowback. Well, let's see. Well, when, yeah, we'll see what happens in 10 economy, years. Fall when the economy declines in Europe, and then you have all these refugees, and you have all these people who have are will lose their jobs, and then you have these Nazis speaking about racial supremacy. Then we'll see what happens. But so in in you know with the the American remember the the, the extremists in, in in Afghanistan, their textbooks were published in the United States. Yep. I think it's not. Yeah, that the Washington Post, Washington Post reported that. I mean, it's not like, yeah, we're not just saying that it's actually reported by media. If someone says this is all conspiracy theory, I understand because it's so so convoluted and disgusting and shocking. Yeah. So so but the Iranians recognize that for whatever reason, thanks to the Americans and the Saudis and those and NATO and. And the British and the Emiratis who supported these extremist groups in the 1980s and the 1990s, they exist. So the Iranians said, we have to deal with this reality. And so now the only country that is sending fuel into Afghanistan, sending wheat or grains into Afghanistan is Iran. So we are the bad guys. So let's look at the map and see who's doing what. So the starvation of Afghan, you're absolutely correct. If we remove Yemen, let's say there there was no genocide in Yemen, there was no war. Let's let's say Yemen didn't exist. After Yemen, the second greatest crime of our time is Afghanistan. Yeah. As we speak. It's also Syria for what because right now they're starving Syria too. They're starving Syrians and they're stealing the Americans are stealing their oil. The Turks are uh, leading uh, the, the the financial support for Al Qaeda and other extremist groups. Serious, and that's also there's a you know it's difficult to say which is worse. But I'd say at the moment, the starvation in Afghanistan is you know after after what's happening in Yemen is is the greatest crime. But no one cares. I mean, these mainstream Western journals. When when Biden decided to confiscate that $7 billion and then give half of it to victims of 9-11. Makes no sense. I mean, just... Mm. It's, it's theft. But it 9-11, the victims of 9-11 are the people of Afghanistan mm-hmm. more than anyone else who are yeah. victims of American policy in that country. So you go and steal the money of the Afghan people for blowback that was caused by your own coalition with Saudi Arabia, creating these extremists in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the people who actually carried out the attacks were, none of them were from Afghanistan. You know, it's just mind boggling. And it really is. Where it's like, it's so obvious. And then when I talk about these things with mainstream Western journalists, and, you know, I speak to lots of them in private, in private, they will never argue against me. But they'll say, oh, the, you know, the Iranians are doing this or that. Oh, but, you know, 
let's say we're doing all the things that you say we are. Still doesn't add up to what you're doing. All the nonsense (laughs) that you say we're doing. It's nothing compared to what you're doing. Say, yeah, yeah. Well, and what they, the the thing that they like to say is that these are um, bad policy decisions or. Yeah. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's the the intention behind them is, is just like unintended. Yeah. yeah, Hitler, Hitler, bad policy. Yeah, it actually is. It's like, no, that is actually the intention. Yeah. Bad policy decisions. Yeah, bad policy. Yeah, no, I mean, it actually is. That's that's what they're saying is that absurd. But Mohammed, while I still have you, because I know that you were very busy and I've already taken a lot of your time, I want to make sure I, there's a couple of things I want to make sure I get to. Um, I wanted to get your take on what, recently took place. I know it just happened and we still don't know the full details, but there was this recent assassination of an IRGC officer in Tehran. I think it was like a drive-by shooting, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And of course, there's a lot of speculation. This could have been the Israelis, the Mossad. It could have been the MEK. Um, What's your take on this? And then on top of that, like this has also happened just a few I don't know if it was a week, days, but it it was recent that um, there was this announcement of an adjoint U.S.-Israeli military drill where like the U.S. was practicing refueling Israeli jets to uh, to go uh, Israeli fighter jets to go like bomb Iran. At least that's what the Israeli media was claiming. So given this announcement, how do you interpret that announcement? And in light of what just happened with this uh, IRGC officer, what do you think is going on here? Well, Israelis do all sorts of crimes. Every They're killing Palestinians literally on a daily basis. Children, reporters, teenagers, women, doesn't matter. And no one in the Western media will, you know, you, you don't see any mainstream Western journalists tweeting these things. It's all in Ukraine. Then they bomb Syria regularly. Just a few, two, three days ago, they bombed Syria. And they, they, who did they right. kill? Three soldiers who are manning an anti-aircraft uh, or missile defense system. So people who are not attacking Israel, who people who are protecting the population, they murdered them. Any Anyone in the West complain? No, Israel can do whatever it wants. It can occupy, it can murder. Just like Turkey, Erdogan can do it. It's, it's fine, as long as they're doing it, as long as they're doing it for us or they're on our side. So, and then, of course, the MEK that you mentioned, the MEK is a terrorist organization that fought for Saddam Hussein. They they were actually foot soldiers of Saddam Hussein in the 1980s. They fought against their own country, Iran. They had a military base in Iraq. They were trained by Saddam Hussein, used against Iran, and uh, they killed thousands of Iranians. I have a a personal experience that I've uh, I've said earlier uh, elsewhere that um, I think it was 1981. I think I once met and mistakenly say in 1982, I think it was 1981. I was getting ready to go to school. I was a high school student and living near central, somewhere near central Tehran. And uh, a bomb exploded. Almost all our, our windows were shattered. And uh, either nine or 11 people, I don't remember, were killed in that bomb attack. It was near Shariati Street, near Tala. Uh, uh, I know you don't know that, but in case there's some Iranians who are listening, Tala uh, Rani 
Charity near that area, near the Eshat Abad area neighborhood, in that neighborhood. Nine or 11 people were killed, including an Armenian family, a husband and wife who were taking their two kids to school. That was MEK. So not only did they fight alongside Saddam Hussein, they were carrying out bomb attacks and assassinations and suicide attacks like ISIS. They would carry out suicide attacks on public figures in, um, in I think, um, Yazd, in Tabriz, in Kemran Shah, and somewhere else. In any case, that's, that's the sort of people who we're dealing with. Where, where is the MEK now? They're in Albania. They're based in a NATO country. Thousands of them are in the camp there. And then they have offices across Europe and the United States. So these countries, you know, they're, they're harboring terrorists. They're, support, they're funding these terrorists. They're waging war against Iran. NATO is waging war against Iran, like they're waging war against many countries, but Iran is one of them. So they can do all these things when it comes to Iran. The Israelis often use the MEK to carry out intelligence operations in Iran and uh, assassinations. So NATO is supporting Israel in these attacks. It's the logistical support. All these, you know, Western embassies in Iran, they're involved. Western embassies and military bases in neighboring countries, they're involved. So it's this Western war and regional proxies working together to, against Iran. When you take that into consider, consideration, actually Iran has done a very good job. Mm-hmm. It's like 40 to one. <laughs> Iran has done actually a fantastic job. Some say this is a major security lapse. No, I think it's actually very surprising that they can't do much more. Mm-hmm. And the Israeli regime, we've seen how in recent, recent weeks, all these uh, attacks have been carried out inside the 1967 borders. Right. Way more. You know, yeah, there's uh, way more attacks uh, inside Israel than. So, you know, they're not exactly in some ideal position, but it's quite possible, therefore, that the Israelis did this and with NATO's support, as I explained. Uh, this officer was a part of the Quds forces. He wasn't, uh, he was a mid-ranking officer. And where where is the Quds force? What are they doing? Basically, they're supporting the Syrians against ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And uh, they're supporting the Palestinians against ethnic cleansing and colonization. So whoever is opposed to that, fine. Yeah, that's can, who they are. That's, that that's whoever a lot, yeah. supports that, that's where, that's how you can, def- you, this is, that tells me who that person is. That tells a lot about so, someone's character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That says a lot. So I was actually on uh, Arabi television right before I came here. I was at oh. a studio. And um, this is a, a TV program funded by Qatar, mm-hmm. my understanding. It's based in London. So I was on a show. It was in Arabic. Uh, I was I spoke, but it was trans, when I say it was translated. Like the guests were like saying, "Yes, the Iranians are spreading drugs throughout." I saw it's like it's so funny. I was laughing throughout the show. I, I probably never smiled so really, much. Really, was it the Iranian? Usually, I hear that Hezbollah is the one spreading the drugs well, yeah, to Latin yeah, exactly. America. That's what I said. Hezbollah is the Iranian. Yeah, I'm sorry, I haven't heard yeah, the Iranians are the ones. It was the Hezbollah, but they were saying the Hezbollah is spreading drugs across. Iran is spreading drugs across the region and across the world. And there, wow, it's like one of those. Um, 
what's it called? The, that comedy. Uh, uh, the Onion, like, SNL. Evil, no, like this. Either you know, this evil guy who wants to take the world, and it's sort of like a, a comedy thing. Um, Austin Powers. I don't even. Yes, know. exactly. Ah, Very good. like Doctor Evil. Doctor Evil. Uh, yeah, it's a, you know the, the Doctor Evil sort of stuff, and I was laughing the whole time. <laughs> Ridiculous things that they say about Iran, but in any case, so I mean, these people who uh, you, it's amazing what the Arabic public is being fed. Oh yeah, but, yeah, uh, of course. Many are way too smart to be fooled by this nonsense. But in any case, uh, that's what the guards are doing. They're supporting Syria against uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. They supported Iran, uh, Iraq against Al-Qaeda. And they're supporting the Palestinians against um, uh, ethnic cleansing and, uh, and murder and, and colonization and, there's, and apartheid. And they're supporting Yemen against Genocide. So if that's a bad thing, yeah, that's, uh, uh, and then uh, if that's a bad thing, I think that they should then assassinate me as well because no, that's God. exactly, that's exactly <laughs> I support every single one of these policies across the region. Well, there you have it, every an invitation. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's there's one last thing I want to ask you about, and it's not a simple uh, it's not a simple. So they murdered topic. a family man. They murdered they, they murdered, murdered a family yeah, man. They, they murdered a family man who was protecting people against Western. I mean, that's like, they murdered. That's the organization Qasim Soleimani was in charge of, yeah. and that's who the Americans uh, murdered. Yeah, no, no, I was just saying that um, Newsweek, the cover of Newsweek, week had a picture of General Soleimani. And it said that he's crushing ISIS. Right, right. Americans were not crushing ISIS, though. They were supporting ISIS up to a point. And the reason why they changed policy is complicated. We don't have time for that. You know it as well as I, what happened and so on. But he was crushing these groups. And then only, and then later on, the Americans, when they murdered him, they said he was about to attack uh, American embassies. And only recently, I think it was the... Just a few days ago, the U.S., I think former U.S. Secretary of Defense, uh, a senior official, you could also find that. He said that, you know, I, I tweeted it, but I, I don't remember who it was, that he said that you know, uh, there was no real evidence of that. So the Americans, you know, it, they did just murder, assassinate, and then the Western media will mimic whatever they say. Yeah, they act know, like something. it never happened. They act like it never yeah, happened. Well, they'll just repeat Western government policy and pretend that they're independent. But uh, yeah, so just so they killed the person who saved Iraq from ISIS and Al Qaeda, who saved Baghdad and Erbil, and who saved uh, the person Syria who cleaned up time. America's messes. Actually, you yeah, it that yeah. way too. Uh, and who saved Syria alongside the Syrian army and alongside Hezbollah and alongside later on the Russians. You know all these and all of the bad guys alongside, alongside all of the bad guys. It's so bizarre. Yeah. All of the bad guys are getting yeah, together. Alongside like, the Hashishabi and those who lost their lives, the Iraqis who lost their lives. And, you know, so they, they murdered. So yeah, if he's a bad guy, well then I'm. Uh, then I guess I, so. I, I, I want. There's one last thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and that is an issue related to the PKK in the region. I'm curious if you could maybe discuss that just a little bit, because on the I, this is on the one hand, you know. Iran has fought the PKK on its own borders. On the other hand, Iran and its allies in Iraq seem to cooperate with the PKK, both in Iraqi Kurdistan and in Sinjar. Well, then in northeast Syria, the PKK has become an ally of Western imperialism, which you alluded to earlier in terms of, you know, ocu- occupying basically Syrian oil fields, the most fertile land in Syria. 
in coordination with the Americans and essentially making it impossible for the Syrian government to access its own oil or its own wheat reserves. So could you just, you know, very briefly, I guess as an ending topic, discuss the PKK in the region and its contradictions? No, Iran doesn't support the PKK. And the PKK is active in areas where the Americans have a presence, whether it's in Iraq and whether it's in Syria. And Mr. Barzani, who is an Arabian and he's a the dictator in control of that part of Iraq. If he wants to stop the PKK, and if the Americans want to stop the PKK, they can do it tomorrow. But the problem is, is that the Americans are always playing a double game. Mm-hmm. In Syria, on the one hand, they work with the, the Turks against the Syrians and support extremist groups. And then elsewhere, they're working against the Turks with the, with the, with the PKK or with the allies of the PKK. In Iran, I mean, that's the Americans play very dirty. In Iraq itself, the reason why we have all these tensions in Iraq began during the U.S. occupation when they were playing off one sect against the other. The Americans use everyone against everyone else. So if the PKK is a problem, let's look and see where these this group is based. And when have, have you seen the PKK attack American interests? Never. Have point. the PKK ever attacked Barzani's and his interests? Never. So the American, you know, it's like, it's like Hezbollah on drugs. You know, you, you have to delegitimize Hezbollah. So yeah, the Hezbollah, they're doing drugs all over the world. It's not the Americans. It's not anyone. It's Hezbollah. Yeah, the, so, CIA, the CIA has never trafficked drugs or used drug money for anything. Yeah, so, so, so the Americans sanctioned the people of Lebanon. Mm-hmm. And then their people steal everyone's money from the central bank. All the oligarchs are their friends and allies. Right in Lebanon, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then what? What is their criticism of Hezbollah? Forget the the, the drugs thing. They say Hezbollah, their allies with who? Nabi Beri. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Nabi Beri is a bad guy, right? If between yeah, right now, you and me, you're in Lebanon, right? Mm-hmm. If today, if tonight, Hezbollah says we we will end our relationship <laughs> with Hamas. What do you think will happen to Nabi Beri tomorrow? He will have an invitation from the U.S. Embassy. I mean, he already does get invitations from the U.S. Embassy. No, no, no. Like, the I, Americans that, that are aside, friends with him, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That aside, that aside, <laughs> the very same NGOs who are suddenly, who are all anti-corrupt right. and all that, they will be saying, oh, he's, you know, he's changing. He's great. He's great. Uh, you know, he, you know, he, 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 in the past. He, he's reforming. You know, he's reforming. He had to do this and that. And, you know, he, the majority of Shia, they support Hezbollah. He, he was in a tight spot. And everyone was, is doing corruption in Lebanon. We have to be real. Everything will change. What they want is to separate Amal from Hezbollah so that they can have some sort of uh, civil war in Lebanon. Yeah. Amal, of course, is much smaller than Hezbollah, but then they would help Amal. Then you'd have Shias, then you'd have Shias killing each other. And then you would like, have, uh, uh, you know, Jaja, and then the Israelis going. So, you know, when the Americans and the, these NGOs in Lebanon, who are absolutely corrupt, 
very corrupt people. They're getting their money, their money from foreign embassies. And these NGOs who are talking about revolution, let's see who they, whose side they take. Are they going to take sides with 14th of March billionaires or not? Mm-hmm. And they those, will. of course, 14th of March, they are cooperating with Nabi Beri. Mm-hmm. Nabi Beri will become the Speaker of Parliament. And you will see like who, who votes for him. But the, the point is that they're criticism. They, they want to say that Hezbollah is corrupt. They're the corrupt ones. They know the only clean group is Hezbollah. They sanctioned a whole segment of the Lebanese population and by extension the whole of the country to crush Hezbollah. So they crush a nation. Their allies are all corrupt. Their allies have been in charge of the economy for decades. And then they blame the victim. Mm-hmm. Just like in Gaza, just like in Yemen, you know, I remember when during the war and you, you'd see these Western reports about how the government in Sana'a, uh, the, the so-called Houthis or Ansarullah, how they're not allowing like this woman reporter to, to report this or that, you know, uh, it's like the, blaming the victim everywhere. It's always like these are the bad guys. It's not the Saudis who are massacring the population. It's not like in Lebanon where you have all these billionaire oligarchs who are allied to the United States. It's not like it. That's just how it works. So they'll, so it's either the Iranians who are supporting um, terror, the PA, uh, the uh, what's it called, PKK, or it's the Iranians who are spreading drugs and across <laughs> the uh, or as Hezbollah, who's sending drugs to Latin America, or you know, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, I want to thank you so much. I know that you fit this into what is a very busy schedule. Um, so I really, really, really appreciate you coming on and breaking all this down for us uh, again. Um, Mohammed Morani, professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me.